0: All right, well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings. 2 Kings. We were in our den last night and uh, Julie was working through the kids' program and trying to prep um, for the kids to learn uh, the song this week that the choir sang. Last week, I was made to live for you. And um, she was kind of singing through it. And my son Matthew was singing along uh, because he loves that song. He was playing as most kids do a video game while he was singing, multitasking. And um, he was just singing right along. we got to the line, uh, I will give my life as a sacrifice for you. And he kind of uh, paused midstream, although he kept playing. And he asked kind of curiously and, and kind of almost a little bit confused, almost as a question, he said, we don't give our lives. What he meant by that was, we don't have to die for this. So I explain what it meant, that this is about a living sacrifice, that it's about giving everything that we have to the Lord, that our lives would please Him, that we would um, sacrifice what we need to sacrifice in order to get to that place where we are living for the Lord completely. And he listened and kind of kept playing, and I think he got the message. But I was thinking how much that um, kind of question, that issue fits into our study this morning, Uh, from the book of 2 Kings, we're going to look at two different texts here and two different kings. Really, the question kind of at the outset for us is, are we really going to give our lives to the Lord? Are we going to go halfway? Are we going to go partway? Are we going to do not at all? Maybe you're unsaved this morning. Maybe you came here and you don't know Jesus Christ. And you're kind of like, all right, let's see what this is all about. How much are we going to give to the Lord? And it's really not a matter of degrees. It's a matter of everything or nothing. The Lord doesn't love halfway. He doesn't love middle ground. In fact, in Revelation, he says, it kind of makes me sick to my stomach when somebody tries to straddle the fence. So are we going to go all the way or are we going to not go anywhere at all? Now, these two kings in Second Kings, chapters 14 and 18, were two kings of Judah. All right, let's have a pop quiz. Was Judah the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom? Ooh, that wasn't very confident, was it? Was Judah the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom? Southern, good. How many tribes out of the 12 tribes were in the southern kingdom? Two, good. Judah and Benjamin. So you had 10 tribes in the north. That was the nation of Israel after it split with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So you had 10 nations, uh, tribes to the north. That was Israel. You had two tribes to the south. That was Judah, Judah and Benjamin. Jerusalem was in Judah. So it was a little bit more valuable because the city of God was in the lower two tribes. Now, um, these two kings of Judah started their reign 117 years apart. So there's a gap. There's some time. There's a couple kings between them. But what's interesting about them, and we're going to kind of compare and contrast them this morning, is that Amaziah, who was the first king, and Hezekiah, who was the later king, both started their rule at 25. They were 25 years old when they started, and they both reigned exactly 29 years. Now, anytime you study Scripture and you see a similarity like that, especially when you're comparing two things, you kind of sit up and take notice and say, all right, something unique here. They both started at 25, they both were 29 years in office, and they both ruled over Judah. So, how can we compare them? How can we draw some, some analysis between them? Second bit of detail, is the Holy Spirit compares both of them to King David. King David, we know, was the greatest king of Israel when Israel was combined, before it split apart. Uh, David was a man who sought after the Lord and lived for the Lord and was a great spiritual influence on the nation. So we see that they both started at 25, they both ruled 29 years, they both were compared to King David. Fourth detail is, both of them had the same opportunity for spiritual influence, Both of them, in their position, had the chance to influence people for the Lord. They had the opportunity to be blessed of the Lord, but that's where the similarities end. And the similarities end because of the choices that they make and the different decisions that each makes in terms of how they're going to live. And because they make different choices, the outcome of both of their lives and both of their leadership is very different. Now, living for the Lord... We need to say this up front because I think sometimes we don't believe the next sentence. Living for the Lord is not complicated. Living for the Lord is not complicated. The word is very clear. The Holy Spirit's conviction is very clear. And one of the benefits of studying kind of two parallel lives like this is we can see in a very vivid way, a very clear and direct way, the, the, uh, the direct connection between what we choose spiritually and what happens as a result. So in comparing these two, Amaziah and Hezekiah, we're going to see the same opportunities, different decisions, different results, and then we're going to draw some spiritual application to that. In fact, their lives kind of parallel so strongly that if you're taking notes, you can almost draw a line down the center of the page and put Amaziah on one side and Hezekiah on another. Because the defining point that we're gonna to come to this morning is what each chose to grasp. And I'll explain that more in a minute. What did each choose to grasp as a part of their life that would be most important? And as we study through this, it's gonna be easy to see how what they choose to go after impacts their spiritual attitude, it impacts their relationship with the Lord, it impacts their success, and it impacts their whole legacy. Okay? Let's study it. Chapter 14 of Second Kings, let's read first about Amaziah. In the second year of Joash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoiadin of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord, but not like David, his father. He did according to all that Joash's father had done. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. Now it came about, as soon as the kingdom was firmly in his hand, that he killed his servants who had slain the king, his father. The sons of his slayers he did not put to death, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. As the Lord commanded, saying, the father shall not be put to death for the sons, nor the sons be put to death for the fathers, but each shall be put to death for his own sin. He killed of Edom in the Valley of Salt 10,000 and took Selah by war and named it Jokthiel to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, son of Judah, uh, excuse me, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let's face each other. Jehoash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, the king of Judah, saying, The thorn bush which was in Lebanon sent to the cedar which was in Lebanon, saying, Give your marriage, give your daughter to my son in marriage. But there passed a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trampled the thorn bush. You, in defeat, you indeed defeated in Edom, and your heart has become proud. Enjoy your glory and stay home. For why should you provoke trouble so that you, even you, would fall and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not listen. So Jehoash king of Israel went up, and he and Amaziah king of Judah faced each other in Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. Judah was defeated by Israel, and they fled each to his own tent. And Jehoash king of Israel captured Amaziah king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Azariah, at Beth Shemesh, came to Jerusalem, tore down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ether into the corner gate, 400 cubits. He took all the gold and silver, all the utensils which were found in the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king's house, Hostages also, and return to Samaria. Now you're like, all right, Paul, this is a strange text for June 8th. Jehoash, Jehoaz, Ephraim, Beth Shemesh, Edom, uh, thorn bushes, cedars. What is this all about? Well, every bit of scripture has application, right? How many know that's true? Every bit of scripture is important. And while this seems kind of strange, we've got all these names, and we've got these weird incidents, There is a ton of application that the Lord wants to teach us out of this text. Now, what struck me as I studied this is that Amaziah's life looks like how a lot of people live spiritually. Amaziah's life looks like how a lot of people live spiritually. He has some interest in God. He has some measure of conviction, but he doesn't follow through. It's not a lack of conviction, excuse me, not a lack of, of knowledge. It's not a lack of resources. It's not a lack of opportunity, as it isn't for most people. It was a lack of spiritual desire, and it was a lack of intentional completion. Amaziah knows what to do. He knows how to follow the Lord. He knows the legacy that David had. He knows what his responsibility is as a believer and as a king. And yet he only goes halfway spiritually. And ultimately he fails, which shouldn't surprise us at all, because the Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. In other words, you can't balance living in the world and living for the Lord and expect your life to go well. Now notice in verse 3 that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, which seems like a good, solid statement of spiritual sincerity, until we get to the next part of the sentence. He did right was in the sight of the Lord, yet not as his father David had done. Now, David was the gold standard for holiness. He was the gold standard for, for obedience to the Lord. And so many times in Kings, we see kings of Israel and Judah compared to David. So what are we saying here? While Amaziah seemed to be strong spiritually, while it seemed on the surface like he had everything together, he apparently uh, fell short of what David had done and actually became more like his father Joash. Joash was a pretty good guy. He had tried to repair the temple uh, by having the people give offerings but he wasn't watching his priests. His priests were kind of pocketing the money and misusing the money, and eventually that became just a travesty. You can read about that a couple chapters before. So he doesn't follow the sterling example of David. He essentially follows the sterling example of Joash, who was kind of neglectful, kind of went halfway. In fact, if you look at um, chapter 12, verse 3, and chapter 14, verse 4, they say exactly the same thing In the verse, it says, in both verses, only the high places were not taken away, the people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. Like father, like son. Both of them tried to serve the Lord, kind of followed the Lord, kind of did the right thing, and yet at the end of the day, they didn't remove the high places. Now, the high places were were altars that were built outside of Jerusalem throughout the country, that served as kind of temporary worship stations. They were places where Jeroboam, who was a corrupt king, had set up, look, you don't have to come all the way to Jerusalem. Why don't you just go to another city? We'll set up a little altar. You can go there. You can kind of do your worship thing. And then instead of coming down to Jerusalem to the temple, you can just be there and you go home. It'll be really convenient. Well, the problem is there was no monitoring of it. The problem is there was no leadership of it. So the people started to come to these high places, and instead of worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth, like they would have in the temple, instead they started to worship false gods. And the high places actually became a place of idol worship. So the king's responsibility was to go destroy those. But Joash and Amaziah both kind of left them there. Let's let the people kind of do their own thing. It's convenient for them. This will be great. Now this highlights, so I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts this morning on Amaziah. Amaziah had three essential problems. The first problem is he did not remove and eliminate the opportunities for sin. He did not remove and eliminate the opportunities for sin. Water flows to the lowest point, right? I know this when I tried to set up our little plastic backyard pool in the yard and, and the yard was sloping too much and we started to fill it and all the water went down in the end and we said, oh no, we got to now dig out some dirt and flatten it out. It was a hassle. None of you were there to help me. Thank you so much. But water goes to the lowest point. Well, when we're not walking with the Lord, we tend to gravitate to the lowest point morally, especially when you get with a group of people that's not walking with the Lord you're going to gravitate to the low point spiritually. So this is what happens with Amaziah. He doesn't eliminate the potential for sin. He provides a convenient outlet for the people to do what they want and for the people unmonitored now to commit sin through idol worship. And guess what the people do? They don't say, we don't want to go to the high places. We want to go all the way to Jerusalem and worship in spirit and truth. No, they go to the high places, they do their false worship, and they go home. And now the country starts to be in turmoil because Amaziah hasn't eliminated the opportunities for sin. Listen, sin is going to tempt us and entice us until we go home to be with the Lord. It will never stop. I don't know about you, but I got tempted this week. I was enticed to sin. My pride tried to go to a new place I I was challenged, I was threatened. Uh, All kinds of attack on us every single day, even if we've been saved for years. And the devil just kind of keeps altering his strategy to keep us off balance and to think that we're not really tempted. But here's the problem with Amaziah. Not only did he not resist sin, in a sense, he promoted it. He allowed the people to embrace the appeal of sin and then eventually he got to the place where he reveled in being disobedient to the Lord. And it's the, the intentionality of his actions that stand out because he tr- started to do what was right inside of the Lord, but he didn't really finish it. Now, I wonder how many of us this morning are living that way. How many of us have gone kind of halfway spiritually and we're getting at some of it right, but we're not really serious about eradicating sin and not just eradicating the actual sin, but eradicating what influences us, what tempts us, what draws us in. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a situation, maybe it's your computer, I don't know. But but the temptation is every bit as dangerous as the actual sin because it lingers. So Amaziah doesn't get rid of the influence of sin. And second, would you see, that he tries to reconcile the fracture of his spiritual life with a second mistake, he pursued something, and this is in verse 5, if you look at it, he pursued something that he thought would bring him satisfaction and fulfillment, and that was power. The verse said, as soon as he firmly got the kingdom in his hand, as soon as he was able to establish himself, he killed the people that had killed his father. Now, Joash had been killed by some of his servants who kind of had a conspiracy and took him down and, and killed him, kind of like Caesar was. Uh, they they came from within and killed him. So Amaziah's got a vendetta in his mind, and he says, as soon as I get in power, I'm going to root out those guys that killed my father, and I'm going to kill them. The problem was, and this seems almost a little cruel. He didn't kill their sons too. And you say, well, that's a little, it's a little much, right? You killed the people that killed your father, eye for an eye. But but why would you kill the sons? Well. The problem is the law of Moses said, if you kill the ones responsible, you've got to kill all the ones that were responsible. And apparently the sons of these men were responsible. But Amaziah didn't do that. Because he was so busy grasping for something. He was grasping for power. And I want you to notice the adjective that the Holy Spirit uses there. It says that he grasped it firmly. Firmly grasping the power, he takes control, he has authority, he's the man, he is the, the powerful king at this point. And that beca- power became like a drug to the point that he thought, I don't have to obey a book written a long time ago. I don't have to follow the law of Moses. I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to do it my way. And then after he kills those men, it says that he goes out in verse 7 and he goes into Edom and 10,000 Edomites get in his way and he decides to kill them. And then he decides to capture the town of Selah and he renames it Joktheel, which ironically means the blessedness of God. There's no record that Amaziah sought the Lord, asked the Lord for his help, Ask the Lord for his leading. Ask the Lord for restraint when he was going to cross the line. There's no record that he gave him praise for the victory. So this is almost a mocking word. We'll call Selah Jokhthiel the blessedness of God. But he's not about the blessedness of God. He's not about anything about God at this point. Then his pride gets really strong and he says, All right, let's, let's rumble some more. I'm going to go get Jehoash and, and we're going to meet. Now, we don't know from the text whether he means he just wants to meet and have a conference or whether he wants another battle. You kind of get the sense that he wants another battle. So he's all full of himself and he's ready to go. And he sends to Jehoash and says, let's get together. Let's have a little fight. I'm feeling good about myself. I just took out 10,000 Edomites. I killed the people that killed my dad. I'm ready to go. You want to fight? And the messengers come back from Jehoash And here's the message. And Jehoash was not following the Lord. But sometimes the Lord sends us messages from strange places. Look at what Jehoash says to him. The messengers come back and say, you know what, Amaziah? You've had some victory, but you need to get some perspective. And you need to chill out. You've become very proud. And you need to be careful. Joash says, look, if if you want to fight, you're going to lose. I'm telling you now that if we get together and our armies get together, you are going to lose. See, the devil loves to bait us into thinking that we don't need the Lord and we can be full of ourselves and that all these little triumphs we have in life are really about us, but it's all a smokescreen. Amaziah should listen to the word. He should have realized that his victories were hollow and that he needed to get it right. And then Jehoash mocks him a little more. He says, enjoy your glory and stay home. Be full of yourself. Sit in your castle. Be happy. But I want to tell you that, that you're not in a good place. And if we get together, I'm going to beat you. I mean, talk about some taunting. Talk about some trash talk, right? We get together, you're going to lose. And yet he knows that that's right. And he's actually doing Amaziah a favor. We need to hear for the Lord's voice. He's doing him a favor. He's saying, listen, your heart's not right. You're not wholehearted with God. You are in a bad place. Your ego's strong. You need to stop and you need to listen to what's going on. Because if I come up there, you're going to lose. But here's the third mistake Amaziah makes. Look at verse 11. Five words at the start of verse 11 sum up his biggest problem. It says, but Amaziah, tell me the next three words, would not listen. Amaziah would not listen. There is a spiritual principle here that we have to not miss this morning. It's something we have to be honest about with ourselves. It's something we have to listen to those that love us when they tell us. And it's something we have to ask the Holy Spirit to teach us on a daily basis. Here's the principle. An unteachable spirit is the telltale sign of spiritual regression. An unteachable spirit is the telltale sign of spiritual regression. Scripture is chock full of people that did not listen to the Lord. The nation of Israel, Samson, Solomon, Uzziah, Jonah, Pharisees, even the disciples many times did not listen to the Lord and it never ended well. Not only does God say listen to my word and listen to my son and listen to my spirit. He says you need to always remember what I've said. So it really is the height of spiritual arrogance and spiritual indifference when we refuse to listen to the word of God. And that can either be passive kind of uh, indifference, or it can be hostile rejection. This is why prayer is so important. This is why study is so important. This is why confession is so important. It's why getting together with the body is so important. Because we have to constantly be be humbled before Him. We need to go to Him in prayer and confession and say, I'm nothing. I'm worthless. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. And that gets our heart humbled before Him. And then we come to His Word and we start to study and we have to be taught and have our hearts open to that and constantly be surrendered Him. It's why dying to self is a daily discipline. He doesn't say, die to self on Sunday and then the rest of the week do what you want. It's die to self daily. You have to surrender yourself daily. But when we don't listen to the Lord, now we get into refusal mode. And I don't know what it is about our pride that convinces us that everybody else is wrong and we're right. The only thing I can compare it to is teenagers. Right? Teenagers know they're right and that you're wrong and they don't want to say it, but you're kind of an idiot. And sometimes we treat the Lord that way. We say, Lord, I know your word. I know your grace. I know your spirit. I know you love me, but I've got this. You stay over here. You do your thing. I will take control. And when I need you, I'll call on you. And if I get on crisis, oh, Lord, come now and help me. But, but most of the time, I want to do it my way. That's the teenager mentality of spirituality. And we fall into it all the time. It's what Amaziah does. He won't listen. So Jehoash says, all right, let's meet. You Get your wish not going to go like you think. And they get into battle. You can see it in the text. They get into battle and Judah loses badly. The troops lose so much confidence that they run and hide. And Jehoash captures Amaziah and to add to the the pain and to add to the shame of the situation. Jehoash tears down the wall of Jerusalem and takes all the valuable items from the temple and all the treasures of the king. All because Amaziah did not eliminate the opportunities for sin and he grasped after the wrong thing, and he wouldn't listen when the Lord warned him. Now, that's a long section. Let's do a shorter section and pray. Now, let's not end on a negative note. Turn over to chapter 18 for a minute. Let's see how to do it right, because the parallels are very similar. In the same way that Amaziah's life looks like how a lot of people live spiritually, Hezekiah's is not typical, but this should be the standard For everyone who loves the Lord. Same circumstances, same situation. Actually, Hezekiah has it a little bit worse because now there's been a century more of people worshiping at these high places and resisting God and not being spiritually influenced. So he's got some cultural and spiritual norms to fight against. But Hezekiah is living by his convictions. And he purposes in his heart, we'll read this in a second, verses 1 to 7. He purposes in his heart to do what the Lord had called him to do and to influence those around him for the Lord. So look at verse 1 of chapter 18. came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king. This sounds familiar. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, notice the next phrase, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments with the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Now, unlike Amaziah, second part of the page, Hezekiah followed David's example. He served the Lord wholeheartedly. Christianity can never be halfway. Obedience can never be half-hearted, because that indicates a problem with pride or it indicates a problem with resistance to what the Lord tells us to do. One of the best ways that we can prove to the Lord and to each other and to ourselves is to do what Hezekiah does in verses 4 to 5. Listen closely now. Look at this. Verses 4 and 5. He doesn't just remove the influence of sin. He doesn't just displace it. Well, I'll put it over here so I don't have to deal with it now, but I reserve it as an option to do it later. He doesn't just remove it or displace it. He breaks it into pieces. We cannot eradicate the pull of sin until we are willing to get very, very aggressive with it. Men, it says, studies say that 60% of church-going men have a problem with pornography. So, men, we can't keep looking at women with lust, whether it's live or on the internet, and think that we'll conquer the temptation by the sheer force of our will. It has to stop completely. Women, so many of the problems that we see in churches are that you don't believe in the love and acceptance of God. There's insecurity, there's there's tension, there's stress and if you're striving to be someone that you're not, or someone that you think will, will fit into a mold, you're going to persist in insecurity and discouragement. And he needs to stop. You need to recognize that God loves you just the way you are. Teenagers, you're under pressure to be swayed to either conform or not to conform. And if you do either, and it requires you to compromise what the Bible says, you are going to fall. We all have temptation around us. We all have things that threaten us. And if we don't eradicate it, and I'm talking aggressively, viciously eradicate it, instead of just saying, well, maybe, then we are never going to reach what God wants us to reach. It has to be broken apart into pieces, torn down, gotten rid of, and that applies to our pride. It applies to us holding on to sin that we need to confess. It it applies to putting away, as Paul tells Timothy, the childish sins that so easily beset us. That's what keeps us spiritually immature. Hezekiah looks and he says, For 117 years... These stupid high places have been here. You know what? We're not going to tolerate it anymore. We're going to break them down. We're going to tear them down. We're going to crush them into pieces. We're going to eliminate the opportunity for people to sin. And when we do that, when we get rid of it, it makes us stronger and it gives us the opportunity to serve the Lord. If we think we can keep it around, listen, If we think we can keep the temptation around and then call on the Spirit and say, well, you told me every time I'm in temptation, you're going to give me a way of escape. So come on, let's go. We're mocking the Spirit. We're mocking His grace. There's no way the Lord will bless that. Look at the two other descriptions that we're going to pray that the Spirit uses about Hezekiah in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, He says that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so there was no one like him before or after among the kings of Judah. Wouldn't you love to have people describe you that way? Uh, uh, that, that, That Paul Rhodes, there is no one who trusts the Lord like him. I'm not talking about bragging. I'm not saying, look at me. I am Mr. Trust. Fear me. Respect me. I am Mr. Trust. No one trusts. I'm not talking about that. Come on, that's, that's not us, right? I'm talking about that the reputation of our character, that the reputation of our walk is that people would look at us and go, that person loves and trusts the Lord. I don't know anybody like them. I, I don't know what what is going on, but that person loves and trusts the Lord. You say, well, that would be nice, but but how do you get there? Are we striving for it? Are we asking for it? Are we doing what it takes to do that? Is it a priority on your life and my life? Is it a priority to depend on the Lord? Or are we still trying to be in control and playing it safe? And when the Lord starts to stretch our faith, we get a little uptight. Well, I can't believe I'm in a trial. I don't know why I'm going through this. Instead of saying, it is a good thing. it's It's wonderful. Count it joy when you fall into the trying of your faith because that's how God's going to refine you and make you complete. Is that how we view the test of our faith? Or do we say, oh, I can't believe I'm going through this. Are you actively asking? Am I actively asking, Lord, increase my faith and decrease me. I mean, that's that's a hard prayer. That's like praying for patience, because you know God's going to answer it, right? Lord, increase my faith. Make my faith stronger. Put me through what I need to do, so I would trust you more. Or do we kind of say, "Well, that's kind of a nerve wracking prayer." I don't. Know, that might make, that might put me in some strange places. Listen, how are we going to walk by faith and not be not by sight? Let alone be a people and a church. Who trust the Lord like no one else, unless we are willing to intentionally say to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. He was known for his faith. People looked at him. People, now we're reading, what, four or five thousand years later? There's nobody like Hezekiah, king of Judah, before or after. He was the one who walked with the Lord and trusted the Lord. And then there's a second description in verse 6. It says he clung to the Lord and he didn't depart from following him and he kept his commandments. What a contrast to Amaziah. Amaziah was out power and control and fame and that was all temporary and false. It says Hezekiah clung to the presence of the Lord and he loved him and he served him. Listen, I don't know what you're grasping after this morning. I don't know what you're clinging to. But if it's not the Lord, it's worthless. God is merciful and he's faithful and his ways are perfect and our ways are rubbish. And the only way we can experience his blessing is to do what Hezekiah did. It's to cling to the Lord and follow him. Now, how do we know that's right? How do we know that's truth? Look back at the first phrase in verse 7. It says, the Lord was with him. That is the best sentence that can be said about a Christian. If at the end of my life, when I die, and I'm put in the ground, and there's a tombstone, the best thing that could be said, and it would have to be true, is the Lord was with him if that's what we were striving for, oh, church, if that's what we were striving for, that the Lord is with us, that He's pleased with us, and He's guiding us, and He's helping us, and He's blessing us, if that was true, the power of our ministry would be unstoppable. And look at what happens. Look at what you don't see as opposed to Amaziah. There's no drama. There's no conflict. There's no confusion. There's no widespread sin. There's no defeat. Israel falls under Hosea. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, comes down and tries to take Judah. And the Lord sends Isaiah, the prophet, and he goes to Hezekiah and he says, it's okay. The Lord's got it. You're following him. The Lord's going to help you. And Hezekiah listened to the word of the Lord And ultimately, the Lord gives them a battle. Listen now. 185,000 Assyrians are struck down by Judah because the Lord helped them. 185,000. What a contrast to Amaziah. Come on, let's have a fight. Israel comes down, annihilates them. Hezekiah listens to the word of the Lord. God has his hand on him. Assyria, which was much stronger than Israel, comes down, tries to fight. 200,000 troops almost are destroyed. Sennacherib goes back to Assyria. And Hezekiah stands strong for the Lord. Listen, our lives are so obviously blessed when we obey the Lord. And he is so faithful. Aren't you thankful this morning that God is faithful to us? Aren't you thankful this morning that God is good to us? Listen, we can only reap the benefits with sacrifice. Lord, I give my life as a sacrifice to You. That's the only option. It has to be wholehearted. But listen, the Lord's worthy of that. The Lord's worthy of our trust. Don't grasp after the wrong things. Money and sex and power and relationships and control and career, they amount to nothing. There, there's, there's, there's nothing beneficial in eternity from those. But God is worthy. And Walking with Him is worthy. And when we cling to him, we will find his help and his sufficiency and we will never be disappointed. And when that happens, I'm done. The Lord will be with us. Let's close our eyes. Between you and the Lord right now. Which one describes you better? Amaziah, who was half hearted and kind of trying, and not really, and not eliminating sin, else in the word of the Lord, but. Or Hezekiah. can't say that their situations were different. We can't say that they had different influences. They had almost exactly the same circumstances, and yet one walked halfway and one walked wholeheartedly. So I don't know how the Lord's convicting you this morning. I don't know what the Spirit's saying to you. But between you and the Lord right now, What are you striving for? What do you see? What are you asking of the Lord? There's no greater statement than that the Lord is with us. And I don't know about you, but I want that to describe me. What needs to be eradicated from your life this morning? What what needs to be eliminated? What what sins still holding you? What are you not releasing? What's the thing you're still trying to control and not yield to the Lord? I'm sure the list for every one of our lives would be lengthy. But we can't walk another day, not another day, holding on to those things. Lord, I pray in my own life that you would eradicate the things that hinder me from walking with you Lord, what a great legacy it would be for us to really walk with You, to really live by Your Spirit, to have it be said of us, the Lord is with them. They had faith like nobody else. They lived wholeheartedly. Lord, because of Your Spirit, every one of us has the absolute potential to live that way, but we get in the way. So Lord, I pray my own life this morning, my life of my brothers and sisters in this room, that we would take the step of eliminating what hinders us and that we would serve you wholeheartedly. Lord, you're faithful and you're generous and you're gracious. Your discipline is gentle. And I pray that there would be a, a fresh awakening in our hearts this morning, not the the passive indifference that sometimes comes with summer when we're relaxed and we've got so many things to do. Lord, awaken our hearts this morning. Awaken our hearts to walk with you faithfully. And Lord, we will serve you and we will show our love for you and tell others about you because they need to know about your grace. Help us, Father, we pray. Encourage and strengthen us for this work, we pray in Jesus' name.